0: Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, best-selling author and journalist Ian Totten, and I'd like to thank you for joining me for this special episode. Before we get into the episode proper, however, as always, I have the normal plugs. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for author Ian Totten or the DeathCast. If you enjoy the show and would like to help out... Please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast, subscribing, and sharing the show on social media. If you'd like to sign up for the show's mailing list, go to corpsecreekpublishing.com. Click on the sign-up button. While there, please consider making a donation. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. No amount is too small, and of course, no amount is too large. And lastly, if you would really like to help the show, you really enjoy what I do, consider going to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon for as little as $2 a month. You can get exclusive access to episodes. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, I'm really excited for this week's guest. The man is a legend in law enforcement circles across the country he's the author of the book san francisco homicide inspector 5 henry 7 which you've heard me mention numerous times on this show this week our guest is retired san francisco homicide inspector frank falzon frank are you there i'm here ian thank you for having me on your show Thank you so much for coming on the show, Frank. I really appreciate it. Before we start talking about the book, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, I'm a married man, uh, married to the my high school sweetheart. We ended up having uh, four children. Uh, we now have nine grandchildren. I'm a retired uh, San Francisco homicide inspector, 28 uh, year career veteran. I spent 22 years. In the San Francisco homicide detail, where I handled over 300 of the city's murder cases over those 22 years. Some of them the most prolific uh, cases, front page stories uh, during the 70s and 80s into the 90s, uh, when San Francisco was going through a a very violent, turbulent time. Um, All I can say is, after my career, I'm so honored i have been a San Francisco police officer. I've met so many of the finest uh, men I've ever known in my life. Of course, there's always those bad apples, but I never associated myself with them, and they more or less weeded themselves out of the police department.
0: So, you know, it's your, your career is just astonishing. I've actually read a couple articles that compared you to the real-life Dirty Harry, which is, you got in contact with me because I left a review of your book. Um, It really did. It put me in mind of, you know, that character from the movie, you know, minus the the -the over-the-top violence that Hollywood interjected. What was it like being a homicide inspector in San Francisco during the 1970s?
1: Uh, For a young man that started out in the police department. I wanted to be the best police officer I could be. And I realized at an early age that uh, law enforcement was truly a call-in for me. I always felt the cops were the good guys. And in the 50s, uh, when television was invented, my favorite shows to watch were always the law enforcement shows, Streets of San Francisco, Dragnet, uh, my all-time favorite was Racket Squad with Captain James Braddock, who (laughs) broke up a lot of con games. So I always had an interest in the human mind and what made the criminal behave so differently than the law-abiding citizens. Um, So I I knew this was a career that I wanted, and I was proud to be a San Francisco police officer. I strove to get to the top. And fortunately, I uh, did spend 22 years working at the highest level as a homicide detective.
0: You and I were talking off the air about some of the cases you had and, you know, were involved with. I thought maybe we'd go chronologically just over some of the ones you and I discussed. You were involved with the Zodiac case.
1: Yes, uh, Zodiac uh, was assigned originally to uh, uh, Dave Tosky and Bill Armstrong, two of my fellow detectives in the homicide unit. Uh, Eventually, Bill retired and uh, Dave was removed for some reason and placed in the robbery detail. I was called over to the chief's office and I was told that I was now in charge of the Zodiac case. But the case at that time became dormant. There were no new leads ever received by me during the time that I had the Zodiac case. So, you didn't get
0: any of the, the letters or anything like that sent to you? No,
1: by the time I got the case, it was probably around 75, 76. Okay. And most of all the interest and in action uh, coming in from uh, citizens of San Francisco and around the Bay Area uh, ceased. No new leads during the entire time I was the investigator in charge.
0: That, that had to have been at least, I would imagine, you know, frustrating. You get this big case dropped on you and there's, you know, there's nothing going on with it. Well, normally
1: I would have had time to dig into, uh, all the work that previous detectives Armstrong and Toski had done, but I never had that good fortune. I ended up with three capital murder cases, uh, the uh, one was a fellow by the name of Robert Lee Massey, a serial killer robber. Uh, the other one was obviously uh, uh, nationwide news when Dan White shot and killed Harvey Melk and uh, Mayor Moscone. And the third case was a guy named Roland Lucchini, who worked for the Water Department and, under similar circumstances as Dan White, killed three of his fellow. Employees because he felt he wasn't being treated correctly. Those three capital murder cases all dropped on my desk just about the time I would have liked to have looked into uh, past information received
0: on Zodiac. You and I have talked about this. I've actually covered this case quite extensively on the show, and that was the murder of Frank Carlson and the horrific rape of his wife, Annette. You I I never heard of this case and I'm pretty well versed in, you know, crime. You know, this was a mind blowing case to me so much so that I act. I, you know, I had to dive into it and find out about it. What was that case like working it? Oh, for me, uh,
1: the Carlson case remains my single most uh, tragic event only because at the time. I was a young married man with a family. My wife and I had just uh, purchased a home, and uh, we were remodeling our home. And that's exactly what Frank and Annette Carlson recently married, bought a beautiful home on the corner of uh, Kansas Street near San Francisco General Hospital. And they were in the process of remodeling this cute little Victorian. Uh, Annette had gone to bed left the upstairs bedroom open her husband was downstairs in the dining room area and he was working on his uh, bookkeeping for Safeway stores an individual climbed through that open window upstairs Annette awakes uh, to a man standing over her bed with a knife she screams and from that scream forward uh, the most horrific, and I mean horrific, uh, events occurred over the next four or five hours. We would come to find in our investigation, as much as the man demanded money, this was never about money. He came into Annette's house wanting to rape her, viciously rape her. So in order to do that, he had to kill the husband. He had Annette tie her husband to a chair in the dining room area. Uh, He used uh, cut-off lamp cords that he cut, and then he cinched them tighter. And then he would proceed to uh, beat poor Frank Carlson to death using a claw hammer, uh, in fact, breaking the the claw off of the hammer handle. He then picked up a chopping block three inches thick, a cutting block, hit him mm. over the head with that, broke the corner of that three-inch block, picked up a jar of coins that they try to appease this animal with as all the money that they had, smashed that huge jar of coins over his head, picked up a potted plant, smashed that over his head, knocking poor Frank onto the floor. He kept yelling, die, you bastard, die. It was at that point Poor Frank Carlson was, in fact, dead. He then turned his attention to the person he really wanted, and that was Annette Carlson. And he led her upstairs to the bedroom, the very room that he had crawled into. And for the next three or four hours, this sick, demented man forced poor Annette Carlson, who was terribly traumatized by this time, what she witnessed uh, with her husband to commit every degenerate, every vile sex act act humanly possible. Uh, When he was finished, Annette said, please don't kill me. Let me live. And he laughed. He says, no, I have to kill you. You know who I am. And he picked up a toy rocking chair on the floor Mm -hmm. that she had as a child. And he began beating her until he broke the rocking chair. Every blow he struck, he was pulling flesh. And then he picked up a uh, a paperweight that was on top of the dresser, wrapped it in a towel, and began swinging the towel at her. Every time he hit her, she was trying to weight off the, the blows with her arms, and he kept inflicting blow after blow after blow, uh, ripping her scalp, face her body upper body was virtually broken just like her husband's as she laid there on the bed she says please please just let me die let me die and he reached down and took his knife and just i'm gonna let you die and sliced her wrist uh picked up a can of paint dinner they had been using to um picked up a can of paint thinner that they had been using to uh, paint their house. And in the process, he pours that paint thinner around poor Annette, lights the bedroom on fire, goes downstairs, uh, pours the kerosene around um, Frank Carlson, lights the dining room on fire, and he walks out of the, the house. Thankful for the fire department, San Francisco Fire Department extinguishes the blaze. Annette was able to crawl out onto the rooftop, scream for help, was eventually rescued. I uh, got there, I could not believe what I was seeing, but not knowing all the circumstances, I said to my partner, I said, Jack, you know, I was working with Jack Cleary. I said, Jack, I'm gonna go over to the hospital and see what I can find out from the surviving victim. When I got to the hospital, I couldn't believe it. Three nurses come running out, and one of them looks at me. She says, you have to catch that man. You have to catch him quick before he does this to somebody else. I had no idea what she was talking about. A doctor came out, and he says, are you a policeman? I said, yes, I'm a police homicide inspector. He says, she's going to die, but she wants to talk to you. And he led me into the uh, surgical room where they were working on her, and I couldn't believe what I'm seeing. This woman who is uh, beaten to a pulp, uh, being sutured and stitched up, she is trying to help me as much as she can. She's telling me everything that happened because she said to me, Inspector, I don't want this to ever happen to anyone else. I I had been told before I could go into that room that I had to scrub up. I had to put a gown on. I had to put a mask and a cap on my head. And I went in there with my notepad and pencil. And I was writing uh, very quickly, trying to capture everything she was telling me. And we left, Jack Cleary and I, uh, we came to the conclusion, money was definitely secondary. This man was there to rape poor
0: Annette. It's like I said, it's one the one of, if not the most horrific cases that I've ever come across. And I know Annette was, you know, really integral in helping to capture Angelo Pavigu, uh, along with her father, who was able to draw sketches of the jewelry he had stolen. And that's really what broke the case for you, correct?
1: Oh, it was it was absolutely unbelievable. Uh, we knew that he took much of a poor Annette Carlson's uh, collection of jewelry, much of it, had been given to her by her grandmother. Uh, That grandmother's son was Annette's father, a very skilled engineer. And when he was at the hospital, he kept begging me, inspector, I have to help somehow, think of some way I could help. So I I said to him one day, I said, you have skills, artist skills. He said, absolutely. I said, could you Annette, you and Annette design the jewelry that was stolen? He said, of course I can. I always admired my mother's jewelry. So he says, with nets' help, we'll get that for you. Well, they did such a perfect job of six, seven pieces of jewelry that were stolen. And I asked two of the premier uh, news reporters at the time, one from Channel 7 News, television, the other one from the San Francisco Chronicle, a man named Bob pop And they both went public with those pictures. And I'll be darn, a couple of days later, I got a phone call from a gentleman down on Marcus Street who worked for Genzo Lee Jewelers. And he says, Inspector, I think I might have the ring that you're looking for. Well, I took that ring to the hospital, showed it to Annette. And there she was with cast on the arms and uh, slings and head totally bandaged, looking out through slits and the bandages, and she held the ring up where the uh, sun was shining in from the windows, and I could see tears forming in her eyes, and then coming down the bandages, she says, Inspector, this is my grandma's ring. Look at the inscription inside, and she was 100% right. Uh, That ring led us to Angelo Pavaggio, and ironically, Annette lived on one corner on Kansas Street this man lived on the opposite corner when he was saying he had to kill her because she knew who he was he was her neighbor for the postal department he was a mailman
0: a just absolutely heart-wrenching story and i you know that you were able to solve it you know using really just good old fashioned police work and none of the stuff that people may see in television shows and that's really the, the crux of your, your career is, you, you know, you p- beat shoe leather and went out there and found the information that you needed. You know, Ian,
1: I I always wanted, as a young boy, police work was not my first choice. I wanted to be a baseball player. And I was pretty good in the little leagues uh, uh, into my teen years. I was a very decent high school baseball player. I ended up with part scholarship to the University of Santa Clara, and a full scholarship uh, to Gonzaga University to play baseball. It wasn't in the cards for me. I became a married man with children. I joined the police department. But I, I did. I, I didn't like the idea that police seemed to work very hard and drink very hard. I was not a good drinker. I started a softball league. Baseball was so much of my life that the chief at the time took notice. He said, Frank, you, you did something that I wasn't able to do. And I said, what's that? You're the chief, what could I do? He said, uh, uh, you got my police out of the, the bars and onto the ball field. So he really appreciated me. And I was, I was put into the uh, homicide detail at a very young age. It was a highlight of my career. But the only way I felt uh, your career could be judged, just like a ball player's, it's not a ball game, it's not one home run. It's a career of home runs, it's a career of great games. So every mm-hmm. homicide to me was important. And the only way I could hit a home run was by solving my cases. So that became the, the
0: premier thing in my life, my career. How were you able to balance you know your work and home life? You're seeing these horrific things day in, day out, then you're going home to your wife and your your children. I would imagine that had to be very difficult to disassociate between the two.
1: Well, you know, for me, I never came home and talked about my job. My family was as important as my job was, my family was and always will be number one. In fact, when I retired. Uh, my peers gave me a terrific send-off that was over 400 at the Irish Cultural Center for my retirement party. And I looked out there, and these were the people I respected. Uh, I never talked about my career to my family. They were the important ones when I was around the house. Um, so they, they had limited knowledge. Although my wife, my oldest son, always read the paper, always watched the news. So they knew what Dad was up to. Younger children, uh, fortunately, I hid most of my career from them.
0: What I would imagine that had to, would have to be difficult, you know. I having never done anything like you have done in life, um, you know, c- going home with these these images and you know w- what you're doing at work is stuck in your head. I, I know you had the the softball league. Is that was that did that help you to, you know? kind of take some of the stress of the job off Uh, the the softball was absolutely uh part of my
1: life uh putting together an all-star team from the police department uh, going up to lake tahoe and playing in state champions uh state championships winning it uh two years in a row all those things were important but the single most thing i i can say that kept me uh Level, I I guess, would be the word. Uh, My father's occupation, uh, he was a a very good carpenter, a very good craftsman, and he died when I was a very young boy. And he had been my hero. He's Mm -hmm. the one, even though he was an immigrant from the island of Malta, and he was a star soccer player, he said, called me Sonny. He said, Sonny you're not gonna play soccer, you're gonna play the American sport, baseball. So my dad was always my hero, my idol. And as a young adult with a house that needed remodeling, I was always doing carpentry work, adding rooms where that possibility existed. So I would say uh, between the softball, coaching my oldest boys basketball team, uh, building houses, uh, I actually end up building three houses in retirement. Carpentry played a big part in trying to keep my sanity about me.
0: Yeah, and that's, you know, I know this is a little off topic, but I mean, you see the stuff that's going on now with, you know, cops assaulting, you know, perpetrators and whatnot, and it's almost like they can't get that, they can't turn it off.
1: What What's happening now, it's, it's very, very sad, and I've seen it uh, coming for most of my retirement years where uh, law enforcement was being uh, uh, downgraded. When I came yeah. in, I was told you'd be the last group of police officers that will be high school, high school graduates or uh, two years of college. In the future, they will be demanding that you have a four year degree. Well, I think you and I and the rest of the world will agree diversity in all organizations is very, very paramount, but the way they went about it was not the way I thought they would accomplish what their end goal is. They lowered standards to make diversity work. you lower standards, you get what happened in Memphis, and you get mm-hmm. what happened with George Floyd. And since the George Floyd case, uh, it's it's been horrific on your major city police departments. They're not replacing the retired person. They're not replacing the ones that are disabled. They're not replacing the person that is retiring. So most of these major departments now are very shorthanded. Crime is in an, an increase. And they've also limited good police work. There's there's very little proactive policemen anymore. There's very little uh, follow-up on these burglars that escape in cars because they're told, police are told, don't get involved in chasing. And, you know, in, in our day, we you didn't have to chase them. You used your radio and you would follow them into another section of the city where that other car would pick them up and Until he was captured, just not happening today,
0: yeah, it's two different worlds. you really had to work your job instead of just throwing your weight around policemen you
1: know and I'm only speaking because I have so much respect for them they're they're pretty much simple people they they have a job to do protect and serve, and then they go home to their a spouse, they have a mortgage, they have children, and they're just trying to do a job. But there's a part of society that feels policemen go to work to shoot and kill, to beat up people, and that's so far from the truth. I highly recommend to your radio audience, you really want to know what police work is about. Buy our book, 5 Henry 7, and you'll see 13 prolific homicide cases detailed about how these cases are broke. I uh, couldn't compliment my peers back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, I thought we were heading in the right direction. So I'm a little disappointed as to where we are today in San Francisco.
0: That, that is understandable. You give your life to something and turn around and see that others came along and ruined what you helped build. Uh, so true. So back to the book. I've covered this case on my show, the Zebra Killings, also known as the San Francisco Death Angels. You were involved with that, I believe. If I'm remembering correctly, you were involved in one set of the homicides, not all of them. Uh, everybody, this this
1: was all all police on deck uh, when the zebra cases were happening. It was pretty much kept just within the San Francisco confines because of the content. The news media uh, was not really blowing this up very big. In San Francisco, it was huge. We had 15 people shot, killed, for no other reason than the color of their skin. And it seemed to be all emanating out of a place on Market Street called Black Self-Help. Very people that were reaching out to help black people rise up were being targeted and murdered uh, during this spree by what we come to find out death angels uh, within the Muslim mosque on mm-hmm. Erie Street uh, across from Fillmore Street. Uh, the second murder case caused by a death angel, uh, my partner and I were out working a murder case. It was a twilight, It was still light out, and uh, we're driving down Haight Street, and uh, my partner says, Frank, that was gunshots. We heard pop, 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 and I said, definitely, Jack, and it came from right around the corner. So Jack turns the corner. My partner, Jack Cleary, he was driving, and as we turn the corner, we see a car uh, pulling into UC Extension, Uh, The young lady was going to night school, and this young lady is hanging out of the passenger sides of the car, and she's just been shot. Jack pulls up, jumps out of the car, and starts running towards me. I started to follow Jack, and I realized, get back on the radio. So I went on the radio, and I put out a Code 3 red light and siren for an ambulance to assist the wounded victim, and then I put out a 406, the hottest call on a police radio. I want all units to respond. The suspect just shot this lady. We heard the shots. He's in the vicinity. The 406 got every unit downtown rolling towards UC Extension, the California school where this young lady was going to night classes. Uh, Very alert Two uniform officers spot a man sweating profusely, dumping his jacket into a garbage can. They take him on. They find the weapon. They find the bullets. Uh, we have our suspect. Uh, he gave me a statement, and it was very, very self-serving. It was very brief. He said that she offered him a ride. He got in the car. She called him the N-word, and he had to shoot and kill her. It was a phony uh, statement, but he did admit to the killing, and it did play a big part in solving uh, four men being convicted of these 15 murder cases.
0: Yeah, I believe that was Francis Rose who was shot, and Jesse Lee Cooks was actually the man that you guys captured. Just a couple of questions. Again, I covered the show or the case on my show a couple weeks back. Were you involved in any of the, you know, the drag netting where they were going into, you know, predominantly African-American neighborhoods and stopping people and questioning them?
1: Uh, we all were. I probably not so much because I had a full caseload. So I was doing my cases along with helping uh, the two primary inspectors. Gus Carreras, and John Cortinas. There were uh, two other men brought in from the burglary detail, Carl Klotz and Jeff Brosh. That was mm. team A. Team B was consisted of three of the best black uh, inspectors we had in, at that time, uh head up by Rotea Guilford, uh, Prentice Sanders, who would eventually end up becoming chief of San Francisco, and... Uh, Herman Clark was brought over from the robbery detail. So those men, they had a team of officers that uh, would go into the different black areas, try to figure out what was going on with all these random killings. Because of the lack of news media, historians are now saying there were in fact 72 of these hate crimes where blacks killed random whites up and down the state.
0: Yes, I've read that. I believe actually the mayor at the time linked 50 or 52 cases initially to the group that was operating in San Francisco.
1: Yes, that was Mayor Joe Alioto, who led this uh, manhunt
0: uh, to try and put an end to these uh, death angels. One last question concerning the death angels, and this is something that really doesn't people don't talk about this stuff too much and there was some serious pushback over police going into these neighborhoods and stopping people is that a really something that demoralizes the force as a whole when they're out there trying their best to solve these crimes and you know the community is pushing back you know the way that they're the police are handling it
1: well you're asking a police officer so i can only tell you how i personally feel i think the day when we get leaders in the, in the ghetto communities, the poorer parts of San Francisco, when we get these leaders working with the police department to try and get the guns off the street, to stop the problems happening in these neighborhoods, that's the only time society is going to level out and we'll see good things start to happen. You throw up nets and you try to stop it, Uh, You're not doing justice for the black people. I can tell you factually uh, many, many, many times. In fact, it was one of the reasons I, I eventually left the homicide detail. Going into the ghetto communities, these areas where people are put into subsidized housing and there's been a murder and you ask them to please help you solve the case. They look at you. These are good, good people looking at you with tears in their eyes can't help you you realize what will happen to us we have to live in between these killers They control they are the the dominant force not the police department or an afterthought those people stuck in these subsidized housings
0: they fear the criminal we're going to move on to another case that you and I had briefly discussed off air, and that was Juan Corona. How were you involved in the Ron Caron- Juan Corona case? Well, the
1: Juan Corona case, uh, uh, it's, it started down in Yuba City. And I, I don't know much of the criminal uh, history with the police department, but apparently they had very few homicides. And when initially, uh, the bodies start turning up, uh, the s- crime scenes were not being protected. And uh, in fact, helicopters, I understand, and were flying overhead and dropping news reporters down on the ground. And news reporters were finding more bodies and evidence. And uh, it seemed like the whole crime scene down there was expanding and wasn't being protected correctly. So uh, I think his name was David Teja was a district attorney at the time, put a call into the chief of inspectors in San Francisco. He said, could you send me a couple of experienced men down to Yuba City to work with us? So my partner, Jack Cleary, and I were sent to Yuba City. We worked very close with their department, but we also developed some leads on our own that uh, tied in the uh, pen that this killer was using killed 25 itinerant farm workers. And it looked like at first it was a symbol because there was an X on every body. We came to the conclusion it was just uh, Juan Corona swinging a machete, putting one blade on the body and then coming back and making another swipe, causing the X and killing these people. And then he would go back And he would log on a piece of paper the killings using a pen with multi-colors. I think it was eight different color inks. And we come to find out, Jack and I, that this pen came from um, a small town in Italy, uh, right outside of Florence. And uh, they asked us if we would be interested in going to uh, Italy to follow up on the investigation. So Jack and I, uh, ironically, it ended up being a blessing in disguise. Uh, They asked us if we could do an excursion, which was a 15-day trip uh, for a Mm three-day investigation to save the state money. It ended up that we took our wives, did our three-day work, and we had a a vacation in Italy. Uh, It was actually the first time... Uh, My partner and
0: I were overseas. Did did that happen often during your career that you were you know sent overseas on excursions?
1: Uh, It did play a part in the trial that uh, the pen. The unfortunate part was once Jack and I did our uh, investigation, uh, we found out two things that didn't really help the case much. One was there was a shipment of those pens sent to the Sacramento area, Florence, to California. So that ordered down the pen theory. And then we found out that the man that we tried to interview who had hired Juan Corona to work on his farm, well, we located him and he was in a uh, sanitarium. He, uh, he was mentally unstable. Uh, that was the end results of our investigation.
0: And they did eventually, you know, convict Corona of I believe they sentenced him to life in prison or it might have been to death sentence initially and then that was overturned and sentenced to life in prison. That is correct. So moving on into more stories from the book, I'm really, as we talked about off air, I'm touching on the, you know, the big ones that people have heard of. Uh, I'm hoping that my listeners will go out and purchase this book San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7. Harvey Milk, I'm trying to remember the name of the individual who was responsible for the death of Harvey Milk. I know they made a movie of it. You were, you were, you know, more than tied into this case. So what happened there?
1: Okay, the day of the shooting and killing of Mayor George Moscone and Harvey Milk, mm-hmm. uh, my partner, Harmon. Herman Clark and I were on for the on call team. Uh, I was called upstairs to my office. I had been down with the district attorneys uh, working on another murder case. And when I walked in, I was told to get up to City Hall. There's been a shooting. Well, my partner and I race out of the office. We get to the car. We're heading up to City Hall. And the whole time on the ride up to City Hall, which is about 10, 15 minutes, I'm thinking, I know who these suspects are going to be. Remember, about 10, 11 days previous, uh, Jim Jones had killed over 900 people in Guyana. Stories were broken, the San Francisco Chronicle, that the remaining disciples were coming to the city to seek out politicians to kill them. So my, my mind was totally convinced that it was going to, It was going to be one of Jim Jones' disciples. Uh, When I got to City Hall, we raced up the stairs, um, two or three flights of stairs. I got to the top of the mayor's offices, and there was uh, Sergeant Jim Molinari, the mayor's bodyguard, waiting for me. He said, Frank, the mayor's dead. Wow. It was like I got hit with a sledgehammer. But what he said next was even more profound. I said, do we have a suspect? He said, yes. I said, who? He says, your friend, Dan White. I said, Dan White? Dan White was a supervisor. He had been a fireman. He had been a San Francisco police officer. He had worked Northern Station with me. He had played on those softball teams and when we won the state title, he was named the most valuable player. He was like a kid brother. He with me. he went to St. Elizabeth's Grammar school. He was the all-American boy, beautiful family. Uh, i'm I'm stunned. My friend Dan White killed the mayor. I would surely find out that he also went over across the hall and he shot and killed Harvey Milk. I had known that there was troubles up at city hall. The cops don't get involved with politics. They hate politics. The politicians, they're your friend one minute, and when they need your help, they put you in hats and bats, which we used to call riot helmets and batons, uh, something all officers don't like because it pits you against your fellow citizen. So we, we don't really like politicians because when they need you, they throw you out into the street to quell disturbance. And then Mm -hmm. on Monday morning, they sit back, they look at film and say, this officer, that officer overreacted. And those officers are brought up on charges. So it leaves a terrible, terrible taste in the police officer's mouth. Uh, Dan White uh, uh, was probably the last, one of the last people uh, I would have expected to shoot and kill anybody. He was a moral man. I never heard him swear. He was a gentleman. He would always open the door for the lady. Um, I had a tremendous amount of respect for Dan. That day, I, I was in charge, of taking his confession. And he had already stated to his buddy, Paul Chignell, a police sergeant at uh, Northern Station, where he, he turned himself in. He wasn't going to make a statement. So when I walked into the interrogation room, he looked at me. And I knew he When he looked at me, I was a man he respected. And he started to uh, cry, sob, convulse. I looked at him like he was a pressure cooker with the lid blown off. He says, Frank, I want to tell you everything. I said, stop, Dan. I have a job to do. We're going to do this right. I went to my desk, put my gun in my desk drawer, locked it up for obvious reasons. My uh, tape recorder. I asked Eddie Erdlats, one of the inspectors in the unit, to join me. And we went in and took Dan White's uh, statement. It was a very emotional statement, very self-serving statement. And when we concluded, we had a confession to two killings, uh, the shooting and killing and execution of uh, George Moscone, the mayor, and the shooting, killing and execution of Supervisor Harvey Milk. Uh, Some in the community criticized my technique. Uh, Those were friends of Harvey Milk's and George Moscone uh, that I should have been harder on Dan White. I allowed Dan White to do a narrative. Uh, The reason being is when we had Dan White in that interrogation room, I had zero, absolutely zero, knowledge and neither did Inspector Erlatz, as to why these cases happened. The fact that Dan White had been a policeman, the fact he had been a fireman, he was familiar with procedure. So I looked at him. I said, you tell me in a narrative way. I was feeding off of everything he was saying. We try to be as complete and thorough as possible. The whole object of taking an interrogation of a murder suspect is to obtain a confession, and a reason why. And that's exactly what we did.
0: He ended up getting convicted, I believe, manslaughter, I believe it was. That had to have been, you know, like a punch in the gut, I would imagine.
1: Uh, The the city of San Francisco was turned upside down when those verdicts came in. Uh, I was sitting inside a bulletproof glass partition separating spectators from the judge, uh, the prosecution, the defense, and the jury, and the court bailiff, Mm -hmm. uh, and the defendant. So when that jury came in, and they read the verdict, uh, it was stunning. Just prior to the jury returning, at that time, the head prosecutor, the head district attorney, was a man named Joe Freitas. Joe entered that part of the uh, courtroom, the bulletproof area, sat down between me and the prosecutor, Tom Norman. He looked directly at me, and he said, Frank, what do you think the verdict's going to be? And at that time, we had heat of passion on the books that diminished premeditation. So I looked at Joe Freitas. uh, I said, Mr. Freitas, my opinion. It's going to be voluntary manslaughter and George Moscone, the mayor. But when Dan emptied his gun, reloaded, walked across the hall, reloaded his gun, and shot and killed Harvey Milt, that's premeditation. So I Mm -hmm. think it's going to be voluntary manslaughter and murder in the first degree. Well, my dear friend Tom Norman, the prosecutor, got very upset with me. He looked at Joe Freitas, he said, Joe, Frank's got it 100% wrong. It's going to be two first-degree convictions. So when the jury read their verdicts of voluntary manslaughter, both counts, uh, Tom Norman and I were the so-called experts, and we both had it wrong. Uh, This was uh, the the press, the media. Uh, they, They ran out of the courtroom so quick. Uh, this was front page story for days. Uh, that night, a peaceful demonstration turned into a, a riot. I believe there were seven or nine police cars set on fire. Uh, city Hall windows were broken. Uh, uh, the city was upside down, buildings burning. Uh, the White Knight riots uh,
0: were something else. That had to, you know, again, just been absolutely stunning. Dan White. He didn't get a lot of time, though. He, I believe it was eight years or something to that effect.
1: Uh, Dan White was released, I believe, after doing something like five years and some odd months. Mm -hmm. And he was paroled down to the Los Angeles area. And at that time, the news media uh, was trying to track down Dan White. They were relentless, uh, like they should be. They were trying to find out where this uh, murderer who killed two people in cold blood got off so e- so easy. Where is he? So I received a phone call one night, and I knew right away it was Dan White. And he says, Frank, I have to talk to you. I said, geez, Dan, I want to talk to you also. I wanted to know, what did I miss? Not a perfect case. So I flew down to Los Angeles. I met Dan. He was wearing a disguise of a baseball cap, uh, sunglasses, and he was in typical Dan White, perfect shape. He had been walking all over Los Angeles for weeks. The first day I was down there, and he told me that his in-laws had sent him tickets to some uh, 1984 Olympic events. They were (laughs) boxing matches and track and field matches. So... Dan and I walked around, small talk. Uh, we didn't talk about City Hall at all. And then I think it's second or third day, uh, I'm going to be flying out. And we're sitting out in the courtyard in the uh, Coliseum following one of the events. And we had a Coke, a hot dog, and potato chips. As we're sitting there, I kind of leaned back and I I said, Dan, I I have to talk to you about The day when the mayor and Harvey were shot and killed, did I miss anything? He didn't answer me directly. He leaned back and he said, I really lost it that day, didn't I, Frank? I said, oh, God, did you lose it? He said, you know, it could have been a lot worse. When I heard those words, I was in shock. I said, what do you mean a lot worse? Do you remember those loose bullets in my pocket? He said, I had 21 bullets. I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, I had five for George, five for Harvey, five for Willie Brown, uh, who was a mayor and state senator here in California. He felt Willie Brown was controlling all the bad politics in San Francisco. I said, Willie Brown? I said, who were the other five for? He said, and I don't know this lady. These are his words. Carol Ruth Silver, she was the biggest snake of all. And I was floored. He is he had intended to kill four people. It was premeditated murder. It was unreal hearing that statement. When I got back into San Francisco, I relayed everything that was told to me, the district attorney's office, and I was told, keep that information to yourself. And I did for 14 years. I shared it with a book writer who had dedicated many years of his life to tell the Melk Moscone story, promised he would never, never release the information. But unfortunately, um, I guess he needed a payday. Uh, the story went public, and there was no way I was
0: going to deny it. That kind of being told that kind of information from someone who, you know, if you read the book... The two of you were extremely close. That had to have left you feeling, you know, like cold and hollow inside. That's not, that's not something you, you know, would expect to hear from an individual who you thought that you had known.
1: <laughs> uh, that's why I keep saying, Ian, that your radio audience, if they really uh, want to read a, a book about murder and how cases are solved, they should invest in uh, 5 Henry 7. Uh, It details 13 of the, uh, like I said, the most prolific murder cases i worked in over 300 cases. Uh, It's an interesting book. Uh, It's selling very, very well on the West Coast. We're trying to get uh, more attention in the Midwest and back East. Um, Just to show you, uh, I have two boys in law enforcement. My (laughs) oldest boy, Dan, became a San Francisco policeman after graduating from the University of Santa Clara. Mm-hmm. He had a business degree, but he wanted to be a policeman. He left after five years, went into the FBI. He's now retired. My other boy is now a captain in the police department in San Francisco. He's a graduate of St. Mary's College. Mm-hmm. Boys, I, I hold in the highest respect. They're what a cop should be. They're good, they're honest, and they'll never tell a lie. They'll never mistreat people unless they're being mistreated. Mm -hmm. But those two boys said to me, Dad, think twice about writing a book. Cops can be condescending, and they could put you down for going public with your stories. So I thought about it, and I said, you know, a few more years, and all my peers and myself will be history. This is a book that I think the public should know about and my family should have for history. So I went and I did the book. Ironically, my biggest supporters are San Francisco police officers, active and retired. The good cops are saying to me, Frank, you wrote my story. You told my story. I I didn't do all the heroic things that maybe you did. I didn't have the cases you had, but I was a good cop. And I know what they're saying is true because I knew these men. And the thing about it, the San Francisco Police Department now has bought 500 of five Henry Seven books, and they are giving them out as a history book and a textbook to the young officers joining the police department saying this is when police work was at its best.
0: Again, I've read the book. It's there is nothing that I don't believe anyone can go after you for in the book. It's, it's like a hard boiled detective novel where you give the beginning, middle and end of every single case that you cover. Uh, in certain instances, such as the zebra killing, you, you talk about what was going on in San Francisco at the time, as far as the civil unrest and how those crimes, you know, helped fuel that civil unrest. Uh, like talk about one last case this is probably i would imagine maybe the most high profile case you were involved in next to the dan white case and i believe if i'm not mistaken you were actually involved in a netflix series about this and that was richard ramirez the night stalker
1: uh yes uh initially uh we had our own murders up in san francisco and it seemed like L.A. was being bombarded with a serial killer. that at that time, the newspapers had dubbed him the walk-in killer, uh, the Valley Intruder. And this individual uh, uh, was horrific. His his crime scenes were uh, something very macabre. He was a dedicated Satanist. Everything he could do that was despicable and and horrific he would do because he was a disciple of the devil so we ended up having a case in san francisco out by ocean beach very uh middle class higher end neighborhood out off a slope boulevard by the san francisco zoo harding golf course and this was a manicured area and uh it was a middle-aged asian couple what had happened when we pulled up, uh, the crime lab uh, inspector showed us where the individual had pried open a basement window using a tire iron. It was a Toyota tire iron. Pried open the window, entered into the house somewhere around 10, 10 11 o'clock, climbed the inside staircase, walked right into the sleeping couple's bedroom, shot the husband dead in bed, shot the wife. And while she was moaning, she was still alive. Uh, he sexually raped her. Uh, the case is about as as horrific and as horrible uh, because of the satanic things that this individual went and did after uh, brutalizing this wife and shooting her and then raping her as she was dying in pain. He walked into her their kitchen opened their refrigerator, ate their evening food, leftovers, regurgitated it, went into the dining room area, scratched into the wall a large satanic symbol pentagram with uh, Jack the Knife etched into the wall. He, he then pleasured himself, leaving semen on the floor. This was one of the gross, most gross scenes ever. Uh, One of the key things we had to work on early on were the casings that were left from the automatic, 22 automatic weapon that this individual used. And the casings were very unique. They had a red primer. And this very alert uh, Glendale police sergeant named John Perkins put a call into the homicide detail in San Francisco talked to my partner, Carl Klotz, and they were going nowhere until John Perkins mentions the casings. And when Carl heard pink primer, oh, my God, that's exactly what we had in our murder case. This is the first link to the valley intruder and the walk-in killer working San Francisco. So we sent our criminals down to Los Angeles with our slugs from the crime scene, they made a political match. Well, now the media dubs it the Night Stalker. Uh, My partner and I jumped on a plane to Los Angeles. They had 15 cases. I wanted to know, and my partner wanted to know everything we could glean from those 15 cases. One of the things we left LA with, after three or four days being down there, they had established a first name Of the suspect, and that name was Rick. Well, we come up to San Francisco. First thing I did was pull all burglary reports. I was going to take a month at a time, and I started to go through them. Three days before the pan murder case, uh, there's a burglary case out on uh, the Marina Greens off Lyon Street. Uh, And the reporting officers, uh, ironically, was my son, a northern police officer, uh, dan falzon and and Marty Kilgara. They take a burglary report, and it's, it was a hot prowl burglary. What hot prowl means is there's people in the house when the burglar enters and starts stealing your property. He was working upstairs. Downstairs in this house were two young ladies that had went to bed early. They did not hear, the man rummaging through the house upstairs. We know for a fact he goes to the front window and looks out because somewhere around 10, 1030, uh, Dr. Saroyan, who lived in the house uh, with his wife, returns home from a dinner engagement. And as they pull in and open the garage door, our suspect is looking out the drapery and then exits a front door as they pull into the garage. Those four individuals, the two young girls downstairs, Mr. and, Do- and Mrs. Dr. Saroyan, they don't realize how close they came to being part of the murder spree of the Night Stalker. Uh, we would eventually find out that one of the bracelets stolen in that case that occurred three days earlier from our murder was a link that would break the case wide open. Uh, The bracelet ended up down in Lompoc, California. Uh, Police sergeant got in touch with me. Uh, We were eventually uh, led to a a woman in San Pablo, the East Bay of San Francisco. Uh, She got the bracelet from a guy named Rick's best friend, her boyfriend named Armando Rodriguez. Uh, We would go to El Sobrante where Armando Rodriguez lived. I I would have a personal conversation with him that is detailed in the book. And it's, it's, it's a very, very emotional time in my career, and I'm sure in the criminal career of Armando Rodriguez. Eventually, he gives me the name Richard Ramirez. Those two words broke our pan case and broke the 15 murder cases down in Los Angeles.
0: There you have it. You're the man who broke the Night Stalker case. Um, there's a lot more in the book on the Richard Ramirez case, as well as a slew of other cases that we didn't touch on. That I, I can't recommend this book, 5 Henry 7, enough. we got a minute or two left, Frank. Is there anything else you would like to leave the listeners with?
1: Well, I know your listeners are the good people. People that care about crime. They want their city safe. All I can say is read the book. Five Henry Seven tells you what your police department's doing for you while you're asleep, while you're awake. We are the ones out there standing between you and the criminal, you and the bully, you and the person that's trying to separate you from the things that you worked hard for. Uh, we need your backing because the media right now is playing in the criminal's corner, and that has to stop. We all have to pull together. Uh, Yes, we want the bad cop off the force, but we want all the good cops to have the good people's backing. And we need the ghetto community, the ghetto leaders to step up, support the policemen, and let's clean up our cities so that we all can live in peace and tranquility And everybody can accept everybody for who they are.
0: Thank you so much, Frank. Again, that book is San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And I believe you can even get autographed copies through Frank's official website, frankvalzone.com. There'll be a link in the description for the show. Thank you so much for coming on, Frank. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Ian. It's been a yep. pleasure.
0: All right. There is our interview with retired San Francisco Homicide Inspector Frank Falzon. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.